hate it when I do that. So I'm walking up here and I'm like, I got this weird sense about this. And I stand here and I'm like, well, now you're fully committed. And I'm like, yeah, there's another whole verse. Oops. (laughs) I'll stick around the next service. We'll get it in there. (laughs) And see, if I hadn't said anything, you'd never know. You just wonder what that cheese-eating grin is on my face. Well, guess where we are? We are back in the Gospel of Mark. <laughs> yeah, no, no, no. Hold your applause. <laughs> we are looking at Mark chapter 9, verses 43 through 50 as we continue on through this Gospel. <clears throat> the best part of this sermon today is the title. So there you go. Now you know what to expect. <laughs> Well, anyway, as we resume this morning in the Gospel of Mark, we're with Jesus and we're with the 12 disciples as Jesus has been dealing with their foolish arguing about which of them was the greatest in the kingdom. That's the the three-week, four-week-ago, whatever it was, background context. And in answer to this, Jesus takes a child who in the culture of the day really was tolerated much more so than was cherished, and whose benefit was more utilitarian than anything else, seeing as as one more set of hands to help out with the family chores and whatever the family business happened to be. There's more to it than that, and I talked about that again in a previous uh, couple of sermons. So this is old material, and it can be heard if you missed it and desire it on our website at fefchurch.org. So after talking about the high esteem of children to the Lord Jesus and the seriousness with which Jesus takes any kind of an assault against them, Jesus emphasizes the extreme seriousness with which he takes in an offense against a child. But the question this morning before we can continue really is, who exactly does Jesus mean when he uses the term a child. Let's consider verse 42, where Jesus adds a qualifying descriptor concerning children, which begins, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble. Now, even though the word for child in verses 36 and 37, again, which we covered several weeks ago, is paideon, which is generally used for a young child, it doesn't have to be restricted to that narrow sort of term, to meaning like an infant. So when Jesus modifies child with one who believes, here in verse 42, the understanding of child now can very appropriately be be expanded to an older child. Or what we might even think of as a child uh, being a minor child, meaning really anyone of any age who is still under the authority of their parents. So just to underscore the point that I made a couple of weeks back, which is why I'm reiterating this, stumbling a little one in the context here of Mark and in the greater context, again, of previous verses, this very appropriately can apply to anyone 
who in any way is guilty of leading such a one astray from the truths and the pursuit of God's word and from the truths and the pursuit of God's character and the truth and the pursuit of God's values and the truth and the pursuit of God's worldview. All of which means woe. Woe to the educator, and by there, don't think teacher necessarily. I'm thinking about anyone who in any way, shape, or form, either by didactic instruction or by example, teaches the paideon, the little ones. It can mean woe to the parents, and woe to pastors, and woe to now school teachers and to counselors and to doctors and to authors and to producers and to songwriters. And you see, I'm just trying to give a feel here of how broad and expansive this can be. Who knowingly leads such ones away from God rather than towards him. Now, you might think that maybe I'm taking this a bit too far. Well, let's let the Bible interpret the Bible. I think the following passages will answer this clearly. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe to stumble, it would be better for him if with a heavy millstone hung around his neck he had been cast into the sea. Now, remember, the context for this morning's text has not changed from that, which again we dealt with several weeks ago. Meaning this is all still referring to stumbling little ones. When Jesus continues saying, if your hand causes you to stumble, cut it off. It's better for you to enter into life crippled than having your two hands to go into hell into the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than having your two feet be cast into hell. This is still in the context of stumbling little ones. So first... One quick note here regarding that age-old question of do you, you personally, and I assume some of you have been asked it, I've been asked it too many times, do you take the Bible figuratively or do you take the Bible literally? Well, the answer unequivocally is yes. You say, well, no, it's an either-or question. You can't answer it that way. Well, yes, I can. Because the question presents a false dichotomy. A what? A false dichotomy. A dichotomy is a contrast between two things that are presented as being either opposed or entirely different. In this case, the question you see, the way it is put, insists that you answer either this or that. Do we take the Bible figuratively or literally? Well, the answer is the Bible is to be taken figuratively when the author through rules of grammar and syntax and literary style and genre and context, intends for us to take it figuratively. For instance, there's many instances I could have used. Jesus says, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. Well, if you answered, I take the Bible literally. Are you going to go now get a metal detector and start searching for the kingdom of heaven? That would be foolishness. Common sense 
also cannot be ruled out. But there is objective reason to take this figuratively. In the preceding verses, we were told that Jesus presented a parable. If you know what a parable is in literature, then there is no confusion as to how to take Jesus' words concerning heaven. So in this case, the Bible is to be taken figuratively. But the Bible is to be taken literally when the author, through rules of grammar and syntax and literary style and genre and context, intends for us to take it literally. One example. In Acts chapter 2, the literary genre there is called historical narrative, describing the multiple languages of the people speaking the gospel of hope. And because it is historical narrative, meaning it is the retelling of an actual historical occurrence, it's not some fantasy, but it is describing a literal miracle as the details following note that Parthians and Medes and Elamites and Judeans and Cappadocians and Mesopotamians all heard and understood everything in their native tongues. The geographical specificity there of the details and the multiple witnesses all tell us this is a literal occurrence. It wasn't some metaphor. It's not an allegory pointing to some spiritual meaning. Therefore, when we are asked about the Bible being literal or figurative, refuse to be pressed into that corner. Okay? Thank you. So when Mark's gospel has Jesus speaking, as he does here, of dismembering one's self as an answer to temptation, we know that it is a metaphor, and it's hyperbole. Hyperbole is, is just an exaggeration meant to underscore the extreme importance of the idea that Jesus is putting forth. And that idea is that people listening to Jesus better beware of their personal culpability, of their personal responsibility to be accomplices in the purposes of Satan, stumbling people trying to approach truth. Anything that anyone does to discourage someone in finding truth, especially someone who loves the Lord or someone who is seeking the truth of God, is dancing on a tightrope over the fires of hell. And try to imagine the judgment on those who are intentionally misleading them outright. All right, back to Jesus' warnings. Jesus uses figurative language and figurative examples and broadens the application to whatever anyone could possibly imagine. This is not going to be elaborate. I could go into way more detail, and I would like to, but I have to be appropriately vague here because of the audience. Not wanting to violate Romans sixteen nineteen, which says, Be excellent at what is good and innocent of evil. I'm concerned about younger minds. 
In this day and age of personal gratification and wickedness, if one is tempted to steal a touch, an inappropriate touch, that will somehow give the perpetrator some kind of momentary thrill, that one had better think again. See how broad this application can be. Another entirely different kind of example. If, for example, you happen to write a blog, and your blog that that you have is aimed at debunking the existence of God or the reality of judgment and hell or some such thing theological that's clear in the scriptures, you'd better be cutting off your dominant hand rather than entering into hell because of such an egregious offense. The the illusion there is that by cutting off your hand, you will be impeded from blogging, okay, in case you didn't catch that. If one is undermining the innocence and faith of anyone, anyone, but much less a child, or even your child, or your student, or your colleague, or your neighbor, or whoever it happens to be, by violating the fences of morality and virtue, you'd be much better off by amputating your leg to keep you from climbing those fences. And so again, to repeat what I touched on a couple of weeks ago, stumbling a child, or better, an innocent one, is a rather all-encompassing warning about steering anyone in the wrong direction, in an anti-God direction, and this goes well beyond just an intellectual assault. This comprises every kind of assault, physical, emotional, sociological, and not merely, again, we're not just talking about merely a transmission of bad information. So what can we say about this? Well, God considers it highly abusive not to put up protective barriers for our children or considers it highly abusive in allowing others steering our children or anyone's child down wrong paths. But it is perhaps worse to even remove the barriers that God instills within each one's conscience and within a culture by his mercy and grace, which are meant to help prevent people falling into catastrophe. I think back to when our children were going to Waterville High School. In Waterville High School, which has always prided themselves on being on the very front lines in the avant-garde of everything new, hip, and cool, which means everything basically that is perverted and godless. Boy, we want to be right out there and be hip and cool on the forefront. And so they were all excited because they got a three-year grant of free money. I don't know where that free money comes from because apparently government funding is, is just free money. Nobody really pays for it. So for three years, they had the AIDS education program, which we poured over and looked at and evaluated and reviewed, and it was exactly what you would expect. 
Everything that I mentioned here, it was doing. It was tearing down those personal barriers by having boys and girls together now so that they could learn each other's perspective and views. It was using the crass gutter language of the street so that they could better understand these things. It would educate them with hands-on experience, which I won't go into details on here, about how they can do this and do that to help prevent these things from happening, which, of course, the very behaviors weren't prevented at all, which I validated from the Center for Disease Control before the school nurse and the health department and the principal of the school, and they sloughed it off as being religious, even though it was from the Center for Disease Control verbatim. Okay. (laughs) We're good. Thank you. Woe be, woe be unto them. And where a person is directly responsible for such sin against another individual, destroying or at least impeding one's ability to comprehend and accept the goodness of God by violating those very boundaries of morality. Again, I'm being vague here and integrity to which God holds us all accountable is to invite the anger of God. It is nearly, say legendary, that's not quite the right word. It's nearly today axiomatic, meaning it's almost like it's an an inviolate, you and your vocabulary, it's it's just generally understood by everyone today. There we go, that's so much easier. How frequently a young man or a young woman leaves the moral fortress, as I'll call it, of the home and enters higher education only to have their faith dismantled by men, by women, and of course now by men, women, slash women, men, with degrees behind their name, and the unquestioned protected pulpit of the classroom. One more intentionally vague allusion out of consideration, again, for the micron, the little, little ones with us this morning. The greatest challenge that people have who have had those physical boundaries of intimacy violated is the challenge of accepting and believing the truth that God the Father is not like their earthly father. And sadly, all too many of you know exactly what I'm talking about. All of what Jesus is talking about is not simply just Jesus, and it's not even just New Testament. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 through 24. Woe to those, by the way, written about 700 B.C. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes in drinking wine and valiant men in mixing strong drink, who justify the wicked for a bribe and take away the rights of the ones who are in the right 
Therefore, as a tongue of fire consumes stubble and dry grass collapses into flame, so their root will become like rotten, their blossom blow away as dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord of hosts and despised the word of the Holy One of Israel. One thing is certain. God does not take lightly the way a Pideon is treated today. And again, that goes way beyond physical abuse. Finally, in one last more personally targeted metaphor, the Lord says, if your eye causes you to stumble, tear it out. That's what Matthew says. Pluck it out. That's what Luke says. And Mark says, throw it out. Three different words used in three occurrences of this metaphor. Now, why three different words? Because this is metaphor, and the idea is what is important, not the specific words used to get the idea across. And the idea trying to be put forth is crystal clear. Whether it is your hand that is fulfilling temptation, your feet which are taking you to temptation, or your eye, which is enticing you to temptation. Do whatever you have to do to neutralize the fulfillment of temptation. And in the last instance of what you allow yourself to see, men, and ever so increasingly, alarmingly, women, lest it draw you to an addiction as powerful as any opiate. And I'm talking about pornography. 47 through 48, it is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell. Where, piling metaphor again upon metaphor, where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. These are not happy, clappy words of Jesus here. But again, let's not lose sight of the context. This is so often completely ripped right out of context. And while it may be appropriate as derivative application, we've got to keep the primary application first. This is a warning that there will be judgment. There will be a day of accountability by the one who cannot be bought, by the one who cannot be intimidated into silence or threatened into overlooking persecution. Uh, Excuse me, prosecution. Nothing to see here. Move along. God will have the last say. And that say will be perfect and it will be righteous and it will be true. And so woe unto those, regardless of their station in life, who have been cooperative with the schemes of the devil. And even more so, if it has served to advance Satan's deceit, paving the way for the most vulnerable in society to traipse down the roads to hell. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes and be cast into hell where their worm does not die 
and the fire is not quenched. Now, I get a little heady right now, okay? Stay with me. Some have argued that the use of metaphors in the scriptures, especially the use of metaphors when it comes to, you know, the more negative kinds of things, the more unpleasant kinds of things, is indicative of the thing being a metaphor in and of itself. What I mean by the thing is, is for example, in this case, talking about the worm, you know, does not die and everything else. There are those who, who contend, and this is not uncommon in Christendom, that the very use of metaphors to describe hell, just in this case, means that hell is a metaphor itself. I mean, how many times have we heard some variation on that theme? You know, I don't believe in a hell. You know, hell is what you make it right here on earth. <laughs> you ain't seen nothing yet if you think this is hell. But Donald A. Carson disagrees with that sentiment. He writes, we can know with certainty whether the horrible descriptions of hell are really bad news or just semi-bad news. Some people say that darkness and fire and suffering are metaphors in order to minimize the shock and the fear that the images produce. It's really not as bad as it sounds because the images are just metaphors. Or even worse, hell isn't a literal place because the images, again, are just metaphors. This is exactly what we must not say if we interpret the images metaphorically. Even if we assume that the language is metaphorical, argues D.A. Carson, it is metaphorical language that has a referent, in this case hell, and if the metaphors are doing their job, they are evoking images of a horrible existence. Just stay with me for a minute. John Piper weighs in. Consider some of the word pictures of God's wrath in the New Testament. And as you consider them, remember the folly of saying, oh, but aren't those just symbols? Isn't fire and brimstone just a symbol? Well, suppose fire is a symbol. Do people use symbols of horror because the reality is less horrible or more horrible than the symbols? I don't know of anyone who uses symbolic language for horrible realities when literal language would make it sound more horrible. People grasp for symbols of horror, or let's take the other side, maybe this will help, or beauty, because the reality they are trying to describe is either worse or it's better than they can put into words. For example, if I say my wife is the diamond of my life, I don't want you to say, oh, he used a symbol of something valuable. It's only a symbol. So his wife must not be as valuable as a diamond. No, I used the symbol of the most valuable jewel I could think of because my wife is far more precious than jewels. And here's a great summation of this. Honest symbols are not used because they go beyond reality but because reality goes beyond words.
It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than having two eyes to be cast into hell where their worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. And then Mark writes, he could have just stopped there. Mark writes, for everyone will be salted with fire. What does that mean? You know my, um, my great love and affection for commentaries, I trust. That's called sarcasm. This is from page 709 of the Expositor's Bible Commentary, which is the one when I use one, which is rare, is, is the best I have found. <laughs> Here's what it says about this verse, because I need help on this one. This quoting, this is admittedly one of the most difficult verses in Mark. Okay, I felt better there. Over a dozen different interpretations are found in other commentaries. Of these, two commend themselves and both take their clue, now listen to this, and both take their clue from the insertion by a copyist. Stay with me. So what does this mean? First, personally, I don't want to ever force meaning onto something in the word that I am not pretty convinced of is what actually flows out of the text. Many scholars with many, many degrees and much more experience and expertise have struggled with the same text. In fact, I didn't find 12 different interpretations of this verse, but 16 of the understanding of pas garpurialithe setai. <laughs> right. It's just four words. It's just four words in the original. Well, out of those many different interpretations, two, we are told, two might be worthy of consideration. But even now those two, a scholar concedes, which might be worthy of consideration, are not even based on what appears in the text, but based on what a copyist in later years later added to the copied manuscripts and added to the four words that are there. So in other words, the the earlier copies of the oldest manuscripts that we have of this text are what I read to you, those four words. Later on, as the word gets copied and word gets copied, some copyist went, hmm, boy, that's a little confusing, so I'll add a couple of words here to help people in the future understand it better. Okay? Those words are not inspired as we understand 2 Timothy 3.16. But anyway, they say, and these relate to the two interpretations that are supposedly worth consideration or maybe worth consideration, In this verse, they see an allusion to Leviticus chapter 2, verse 13. What does that say? Here's what it says. Every grain offering of yours, moreover, you shall season with salt, so that the salt of the covenant of your God shall not be lacking from your grain offering. With all your offering, you shall offer salt. That was supposed to help. Well, the explanations based on Leviticus 2 follow explanations which to me are not comprehensible in the context 
of the early manuscripts in which, again, those actual four words appear. But finally, I found an explanation again by my mentor from world-renowned, as he is, Greek scholar Donald Carson, who after eloquent and lengthy explanations with too many disclaimers in his exclamations to count, uses the word enigmatic to describe the statement here in this verse by the Savior. Meaning what? Meaning uh, it's, it, it's, it's different to, difficult to interpret. It, it's a mystery. So I felt, ah, big sigh of relief. So what does the verse mean? Are you ready? All right. If Donald Carson has nothing here, and he's got nothing here, it's enigmatic. I am not going to pretend to have any semblance of a reasonable answer for what this means. How satisfying is that? There you go. We're on the last verse. Yay. Verse 50. Salt is good, but if the salt becomes unsalty, with what will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. All right. Here again, most authorities that I consulted predicate the meaning of verse 50 on the what I think is a really strained understanding of verse 49 that I just went through with you. All of which means... That doesn't have, as far as I'm concerned, any credibility as to what it means either. And I'm content to leave it at, for now, it's enigmatic. But I will do this. In light of the context that this enigmatic couple of verses is found, I lamely, lamely, boy, that's lame, okay? I lamely and weakly, not weekly seven days, weekly meaning no strength or vigor to it, and without much conviction, (laughs) submit that the last verse could be equating saltiness with a Christian of integrity, again, remember the context and the warnings, and truthfulness, and unsaltiness with a poser who has no truthfulness or integrity in themselves. So Jesus warns the disciple who, again, many weeks ago now had been arguing about who is the greatest in the kingdom. Remember, that's, again, what started this whole thing. And Jesus warns the disciples to stop such foolish arguments and by it losing their saltiness based on the way I just submitted it, by losing their appeal, by losing their effectiveness, by losing their benefit to others with silly arguments like who's the greatest in the kingdom that are not grounded in truth and rather seek to make yourselves salty again, getting along with one another. I said lamely and weakly and without conviction. So there you go. Put that in your pocket or chuck it in the little round container on your way out. But what is clear? What is absolutely clear is what people, and I don't mean just they, them, those out there. I am talking about Christian parents, Christian authorities, Christian doctors, Christian teachers, Christians themselves because of peer pressure, 
because of fearing perhaps for, for consequences if they say or do otherwise or even think otherwise. This is a stern, stern warning against caving and losing and stumbling those around. This is why I absolutely go up, nearly hit the ceiling in this high ceiling building and hover for a bit when I hear of the next new Christian song artist who just comes out and endorses and blesses homosexuality and homosexual marriage and love of any kind being good and great. They are stumbling. They are stumbling. The little ones. Woe, Jesus says. Woe be unto you. Never stand. Father in heaven, dear God, there are no few. Christian colleges that have collapsed on the hot-button issues of the day concerning sexuality. And it is deplorable. And for their sakes, O God, I pray, wake them up. Remove the blinds from their eyes and bring them to repentance. And Lord, where each one of us in our own spheres of influence, even with our own children, help us, O oh God, to be more mindful of the ways in our speech, in our visual habits, in the way we deal with one another, in the way we speak to our children, and in the way we act that we stumble them and cause them, O oh God, to run from the church at their very first chance. Lord, have mercy first on your church and then on this nation. We pray in Jesus' name.